want to welcome you to our series, Learning Together, Navigating COVID-19. Today's session is COVID-19, Tracing, Tracking, and Testing, Challenges, Benefits, and Transformation. OptimizeRx continues facilitating conversations, connecting key industry stakeholders to help drive innovation, collaboration, and education as we all work towards stopping the spread of the coronavirus and explore the transformational changes occurring in healthcare. Joining us today is an amazing panel, as every time we do this, uh, we we're extremely excited just because we're talking about something that's completely new to everyone. So we're going to start with um, introducing you to John Werner, who is actually joining us in a little bit. Now, John serves as managing director and partner at Link Ventures and chief network officer and SVP of Kogo Labs. John has created a career out of bringing ideas, networks, and people together to generate powerful results. Before joining Link Ventures and Kogo Labs, John's deep curiosity and penchant for problem solving led him to a diverse set of roles spanning many fields and interests. John founded Ideas in Action, Inc., a nonprofit which created and currently leads the innovative enterprise-led TEDx Beacon Street, which is one of the top 10X, um, TEDx stages in the world. In addition, he serves as the head of innovation and new ventures at the MIT Media Labs Camera Culture Group and the managing director of Emerging Worlds SIG, where he led the launch of collaborative innovation centers in Mumbai, Nashik, and Hyderabad. John is an innovator, mobilizer, and human super connector. He constantly builds community and it's a moonshot thinker innovating as he goes while incorporating the latest technologies. He believes wholeheartedly in 21st century collaborative creativity and innovating with direct human or environmental impact. Next, we have Gabor Butlendi, founder and CEO of Minta, an online scientific equipment and lab testing services platform. Minta has rapidly adapted its platform to connect COVID-19 testing labs with employers and healthcare partners to streamline access to clinical testing. Prior to Minta, Gabor founded and was CCO of Parabase Genomics. Under his leadership, the company developed the first rapid next generation sequencing-based molecular diagnostic test using dried blood spots for critically ill neonates. The newborn DX test spanned 1,722 inherited genes and helped establish the field of neonatal precision medicine. He successfully sold the company to Quest Diagnostics in 2017. Gabor has played central roles in establishing some of the key genomics tools in the field today, chromosomal microarrays, genome enrichment, and exome sequencing. And now we also introduce Greg Nadu, Program Manager at PathCheck. Greg's life work has been dedicated to improving learning opportunities for all through both enterprise-scale systems, um, system changes, and human-scale interactions and experiences. First, on the public side, as Massachusetts' first state education CTO, and since 2001 as a consultant to other state, local, and national education, education agencies. Greg has brought disruptive system thinking and compassionate commitment to enable personalized competency-based learning at the scale of the internet. Greg now leads PathCheck, an MIT spin of global movement to develop free, open source, privacy by design tools for residents, public health officials, and larger communities to flatten the curve of COVID-19, reduce fear, and prevent a surveillance um, state response to the pandemic. Our moderator today is our own Rebecca Love, Vice President of Customer Strategy and Engagement at OptimizerX, and I would also call her a human super connector. Now we're gonna get started with COVID-19 tracing, tracking and testing, challenges, benefits and transformation. Rebecca, I don't think that even like saying all of that, I'm able to do justice to our amazing panel today. So I hope you guys can definitely tell us more about yourselves. Take it away. Myra, thank you so much. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here with such a distinguished panel. The truth is, is right now, as we look to reopen the economy and also return to work, the idea of tracing, tracking, and testing is at the forefront of many of our minds on how to do that safely. Greg, 
Gabor, it is an honor to have you both with us. And if I can explain a little bit of the background and how I know you and why this is important, is I joined Greg and John in a conversation of an MIT spin out on a project that they are referring to as Safe Path. And Greg is going to give us a high level overview and understanding of how they're using technology to really reinvent how we can do tracing and tracking in a modern day age via the apps that we use every day on our phone. Gabor, is in the history of genomics and understanding of complex disease states, has re-engineered his own platform that connects FDA emergency youth authorization labs and tests across the country to quickly scale up testing for employers and access to resources that are gonna be fundamentally necessary for us to open society to be safe and effective as we move forward. We're gonna start this conversation leading towards Greg to explain to us what has been the history of some of the way that we've done with pandemics and looking forward is what they are doing with managing safe path. Greg, Gabor, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Rebecca. Greg and Gabor, it's an honor to be here with you both. Well, Greg, let's just sort of set the platform of what's going on in the world. Um, Gabor, you in the same way. Let's just sort of, before John joins us, before we show this deck, what is your understanding of the history of pandemics and how we used to manage crises versus where we are looking to manage a pandemic like COVID-19? Greg, do you want to give us, I know your background's in education, so you've sort of moved over from large-scale education initiatives to translate what you've done in education to helping us learn what we've learned in those industries across that. So how did you get tied into this initiative? Well, John Werner, uh, who is um, the ultimate connector, sent me an email in the morning of March 12th, and I had been working in large-scale education ecosystem, global education ecosystem, mostly around data standards for interoperability. Um, and um, I was finished my morning coffee and looked at the email for uh, private kit safe pass and kind of put it away and then came back to it and thought, wait a second, you know, not only is this a really important response to this global crisis, it's deeply aligned with my life's work and values. And so um, I went over to the Media Lab um, on the 13th, Friday the 13th, I met with Ramesh Raskar, um, who is the founder um, of, uh, of the Safe Paths movement. And it was a little bit like uh, out of a science fiction movie, where it was kind of like one of that scene where like the aliens are about to invade, and then there's a professor and some graduate students, and they've got duct tape, and they're gonna put, they're gonna manufacture this thing that's gonna save the planet, right? Um, and so um, the Media Lab was locked. Um, the only thing that was coming in and out was uh, boxes of pod thai, um, which Ramesh had dictated be the only thing that we would eat would be pod thai. And so um, at around midnight that night, Ramesh and John asked what um, I thought of that. I'd been there for about eight hours and um, I offered to help structure uh, the meeting cadence and organization. And so we, we broke things into nine work streams and um, I'd been managing remote teams for about 25 years, and so I started meeting candidates the next day. And so I actually, that's the only time I've ever met any of these people in person. Um, but this idea, you know, then evolved into being a project and a product and really a global movement and community. So for the first 45 days, we had uh, every single morning at 11 o'clock, we would have an all hands meeting. And it was open, inclusive, and generated. 1500 volunteers getting involved. Um, so then we went through this phase of at first, you know, just constantly what we call the Groundhog Day conversation, which is volunteer, hey, I wanna help, okay, you wanna help, okay, let me tell you how important I am and all the background and everything. Okay, but actually I'm too busy to help you, but maybe I'll connect you with someone. So we quickly learned that that was not a good, that that was just burning out our core people, doing that literally four or five hours every day. Um, so we kind of stabilized into a group of committed, uh, core active volunteers um, and um, have been, you know, running since then. Um, we are now beginning to this next phase of transforming into execution. Um, and I can talk more about that. Um, yeah, Craig, I can't wait to get into that. And I'm going to have you actually pull up your report here in just a second to walk us through what you're doing. And Gabor, similar to Greg, I mean, coming from a really interesting sort of, well, you really came out of left field and they brought you into the spaceship uh, kind of ones, which I love. Gabor, how did you look at this crisis and, and develop, you know, as it's developing with your background and say, okay, this is, you know, to reopen the country safely, how do we become part of the solution um, to dealing and managing with this, this pandemic? 
Yeah. Um, thanks, Anna. Yeah, my life does seem like one of those independent films, you know, that you watch on the airplane flight to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Having escaped Hungary, undergrad in biochemistry, master's in family therapy, and moving into diagnostics and genomics is not like a straight line fit. Uh, but I remember the day this journey started for me, for me actually was in the summer of 2016. Uh, I was on a tour at the Broad Institute and Stacy Gabriel, who you know runs a genomics platform there, was giving me a tour of the labs because at that time, pair-based genomics was looking for a reflex test for our NGS sequencing panel. And the only thing in town that we could reflex to when a physician saw a suspicion of some genetic ideology was a whole genome clinical kind of offering. So Stacy gave me the tour, blah, blah, blah. She, and she opens a door to one of the sequencing rooms and it's like pitch black, like nothing even blinking. I expected some lights to blink or some fluorescent lights, nothing. And I turned to Stacy, I was like, Stacy, what is this? And she's like, shh. And I was like, shit, I've been so stupid my whole career. Like this equipment's just sitting there. No one's actually using it. And I've been in an academic lab and everything for 20 years of my career. And there was a really a day that I realized even before we uh, you know, exited from Parabase that there's an opportunity to create sort of this, bring the sharing economy to life sciences. Mm. So at that time, you know, our thinking on Minta was, hey, let's just digitize all the large Illumina instruments and core facilities and the services and people will, will come and digitally access it just like people did on Amazon to digitally buy books, right? Now, certainly our thinking has changed uh, because you fast forward in the summer of July of 2018, actually, I was foolish enough to get a talk at uh, the Cavendish Global Impact Forum. It was an investor group meeting in California and I, I pitched a distributed network of scientific equipment for pandemic monitoring for H1N3. And that didn't go really well. Like no one bought it. Like Gabor, that's crazy. So you fast forward two years. So, you know, for us, you know, the way we look at uh, diagnostic testing. So Minta is not really about COVID testing. It's really about digitizing the entire world of life science research equipment and services and digitizing and making accessible all the clinical testing and services online so that clinicians and researchers don't have to think about where to get, send an email, get a PDF quote, talk to humans, which we have to talk to humans, but we think maybe 80% of the effort that goes into finding a resource, whether it's a research resource and clinical research, is digitizable, right? And that's all we're doing. We're really digitizing the entire world of life sciences. And the joke we make is, you know, we in science, we, we have big egos. We think we're smart, sometimes not intelligent, but definitely smart, um, is that life sciences is still, and clinical testing is still in the 19th century. Why is it that you have multi-million dollars of equipment, hundred million dollar facilities like the Broad, Hudson Alpha and whatever, and I still have to send a PDF quote to order a test or get a quote. Like it's really like the old 1960s where you saw those black and white movies where there's a big supercomputer, some dude smoking cigarettes, the tapes turning, and only like three people in the world that know that stuff exists. And so while we have an internet, we have big data, we have big equipment, uh, genomes are getting cheaper. We haven't managed to create the digital infrastructure that needs to scale research and clinical testing. And so how did you bring it over to then dealing with COVID? So you see this? Oh, it, again, it was one of those things. Um, in January of this year, we had planned that in Q3, we're gonna launch molecular testing on Minta. Um, and then the COVID thing happened about four months early than we had planned to launch Minta Clinical. And I thought, well, we're going to launch clinical exome sequencing, clinical whole gene sequencing, distribute across all these labs. And we just basically changed it to infectious disease and COVID. But it was pretty much the same plan we already had, just a different use case. So large scale access to testers is on labs that would normally not be utilized so that you could quickly scale up to the amount of patients that we will need to be able to test is basically what you're doing, giving access to large scales in a way that's been very fragmented in processing before. Yeah, I mean, if you go to Amazon, you don't ask them, hey, Jeff, uh, how, how do you manage to have all those books always in stock, right? And an employer shouldn't ask, hey, where's all these tests? They need one bucket of RT-PSR tests, one bucket of antibody tests, click, reserve, walk through the process. They shouldn't have to worry about the operational supply chains on the back end. That's so like 20th century 
maybe at best. <laughs> well, I love it. And we're going to get in and diving into what actually testing means and what it looks like. But for that, going backwards, you know, in the history of pandemics, we've always done tracking and tracing in regards to how we stop that spread. So Greg, why don't we pull up what you're doing at SafePath? And as why you do that, can you sort of explain what tracking and tracing is in very basic terms for, the, the, for everybody that's listening? Yes. So I guess I would suggest that the third T isn't track, you know, but should really be trust. And really that should be the first T. Um, so, you know, what brought me to safe paths and as we now are referring to it, path check um, is uh, this idea of personal data control. And that that is at the essence of both uh, education and health records. Um, so, um, we've been applying that primarily um, to a integrated approach to contact tracing, um, which I'll talk about uh, uh, briefly, and um, our interest in really applying it to verifiable test results, which is where Gabor, um, it's going to be really exciting to, um, I'm looking forward to talking to you right after this about how we can kind of integrate and merge efforts. I think we'll see that there's some really exciting touch points between um, uh, what you're working on and what we're working on. Um, so trust, as I said, starts with personal data control and there's a, uh, there's a whole uh, coalition of different privacy groups working across a bunch of different fields that we're in touch with. And MIT has provided a good home and launch pad um, through the uh, computational law um, initiative. But I, I think we can kind of reduce it to the core principle that health education, location, and contact tracing data must be considered personal data. And other than the use of the provider to do the thing that they're doing with the person and using the data for that. So for example, a school is generating data education records and should use those education records that they're generating for the provision of education. A hospital, same, generating medical records, using it within the hospital. But the school and the hospital should never share the health or education records outside of their specific organization without the voluntary, explicit, and targeted consent. So that basic principle is really what underlies everything that we're doing. Because if we do that, then we establish a context of trust. And I'm gonna come back to why that's so important from a public health standpoint. Um, but let's start with contact tracing, which, um, as people know, it's you know been referred to as kind of shoe leather ep epidemiology. Like you go and you talk to the person in the hut, and you say, you know, who who else is in your hut, or you know, or wherever the spread has been. And or we kind of okay, so in South Korea, you know, at early stages, it took them 1,160 contacts to backtrace one patient. Now we just can't do that in America. Um, at the scale of where we are right now. So what we're seeing though is a wave of states hiring um, an army of, by estimates, 150,000 contact tracers. And so this particular um, screen that I'm sharing here is from the, um, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, their new online course that's being used to train the 38,000 contact tracers that they're training. And so it goes through a first module, which is what is COVID, and then a second module of what is contact tracing. And then you get to this third, which is how do you actually do it? And then this is the step three, which is like the, the center of the center. This is the actual kind of key moment. Okay, so you're a contact tracer, you're on the phone, you call the person, so, you know, establish relationship, make sure they're okay. And then you say, okay, now, can you remember who you've been in contact with for the past 28 days? Or you say, well, would you be willing to look at your calendar or your phone, maybe to help jog your memory? And so, Greg, what you're talking here is a very manual person to person. You just said that New York City, and how many people did they hire to go through this program for contact tracing out of curiosity? Uh, New York State, which excludes New York City in this capacity, is, is hiring 17,000. 17,000 people to do contact tracing one by one, jog your memory, 28 days of prior exposure is what you're being asked to do. Thank you. Keep going. That's amazing. So, we think that there is a incrementally better way to do this interview, right? And so basically we, we are rolling out two um, open source free 
unrestricted license sets of technology, what we call safe places, um, which is what the contact tracer would use. So what we think should happen is that when that contact tracer gets to the interview, they should say, can you download this application? And it's going to take your Google history information, it's going to parse it and um, put it and take five minute snapshots of it. And then it's going to encrypt it, send it to the contact tracer. The contact tracer then has a, um, has a um, little dial. Okay, okay, day one. Okay, I can see that you were in this location. Okay, that was my home. Okay, we talked to everyone in your home. And then you're at this next location. That was my friend's house. Okay, so do you want to talk to your friend or should we? Okay. And then you're at this third location, which was the supermarket. Well, in America, what the contact tracers are saying, if you haven't been in longer than uh, 10 minute, you know, uh, contact, then we just, we're just going to not pay attention to that because fundamentally they just don't have a way to, to deal with that. So what we can do though now is say, okay, we're going to de we're going to delete. Uh, first of all, it was easier to do the interview because we have like, it takes you right into Google street view. Can I, does this remind you if you were doing a zoom when you were doing the interview, Does this remind you where you were? Did, did you talk to anyone? Did you touch anyone? Um, and then you then end up with just the public anonymized data. And so just the supermarket. So now you aggregate that and you make that available to everyone on the app. So that downloads onto the app. And now the unaffected person knows on Tuesday, I might've been exposed, right? So it's that full loop that we've been working on as our first problem. And I think one of the important points that you're pointing out is anonymized, is that's coming back to the issue of trust, right? That's the, the, some of the questions I think. That's right, it's anonymized in the way that we, we, the way that we, the way that it'll be working for us. It won't even say that you were at the supermarket. It'll just say on Tuesday, you might've been exposed. So we're not even gonna say the location of where it happened. So then the second thing that we're integrating in is the Google Apple Exposure Network. So this is a historic agreement between Google and Apple, um, and it, it solves a part of the problem that no one could solve other than them. Um, and um, it has confused a lot of people in terms of being an actual comprehensive solution. So just as a way of understanding what, it, you know, if you, uh, there was a recent uh, Washington Post poll that said that only 40% of Americans intend to use this, and 75% of Americans have smartphones, so 30% of Americans intend to use this, you have to both be having it on and configured at the same time in order to have any pairing, which means that only 30% times 30%, 9% of transactions will actually be recorded, 91% won't. That's the best case scenario, right? So yeah, it's important. It can help in certain circumstances, but fundamentally on its own, it's definitely not gonna solve the problem. So if I can now move quickly to where, Gabor, I think where, where we can really you know, start getting into thinking about how these can, things can work together. The other area that we're working on is verifiable credentials. Um, and so um, in Colorado, the digital driver's license, it's got a little, um, that little uh, um, flower is a little animation just so it's not like a static thing. So you, but what it says is it doesn't say your date of birth. It just says over 21, right? And when you go to a bar, yep. you QR code to the menu, and it sends the transmission or you, QR, or you QR code to the waiters or the bouncers device and it pairs there. And what it does is it says, well, the holder of the driver's license is going to tell the bartender that they're over 21. The bartender trusts that the registry of motor vehicles is correctly issuing uh, date of birth information. And so the holder then says, um, I meet your challenge, I'm over 21. But it doesn't actually reveal your age. Okay, so that's just kind of, that's not like the most important example. But now in the UK, this exact same technology is being used to instantly verify doctors. So you walk up at the door and the, and the person at the door of the hospital, you pair with QR coding, exact same thing. I trust the NIH and so therefore, I trust that this medical credential has been issued properly and so therefore, it meets my challenge. Okay, now for testing. This keyboard is where I think we really can start to do things together. What if every test result in America was also stored in the holder's wallet, not in some central database, but in the holder's wallet, encrypted on their device, under their control, and they then go to a school, and the school says, well, if you had the antibody, antibody test with the last, let's say, 60 days, um, then that, that would meet our criteria. But if you don't, then you'd have to have the either the test within one day 
or the test within seven days with six days of recorded symptoms, whatever these, whatever, whatever it would be, right? And it could be different, could be very different when you're entering an elderly housing facility that might be a much higher standard than that. So again, the holder says, pairs, the, and it just says, I either meet or I don't, green or red, revealing no additional information. It doesn't say I met it by my antibody test. It doesn't say I met it by, it doesn't say what it is. It just says either I meet or I don't meet your challenge. No personal data in a central database, no personal data exchanged with the verifier. So this- Greg, can I, can I ask a quick question? Sure. It's supposed to be dynamic, Rebecca told me. So I'm following, I, I'm good at following directions. <laughs> Uh, so I guess the employer is responsible for determining the policies for what's considered like go or no go. Because even in the QR code that we are providing to our employees, I'm like, who's going to decide what is the go, no go decision? Is it one test, two tests, one negative, one positive, once a week, twice a week? Like someone has to establish a policy for whether that's a green light or orange light. Or how are you 100%. thinking of that? Yeah, so 100%. So that's why this you know, th th this picture is important, which is there's a whole technology stack, but there's an equally important directly connected policy stack, hmm. right? And so if you just think about the technology and you don't think about the policies, you're not going to have a solution, right? So there needs, it, there needs to be a meta-system governance framework. There needs to be a way in which you establish meta-registries of trusted issuers. There's a bunch of policy protocols that are necessary in order to choreograph each of the pieces of this puzzle. Um, so I don't want to take too much because I think that, I mean, this might be even a good, I don't know whether we want to leave, I mean, I guess I could just say just, you know, that this particular picture, W3C distributed identity, W3C verifiable credential at the World Wide Web, um, which is not specific to health or education. That's just the way that the web works. Um, the Google Apple Exposure Network Protocol, and then our or other GPS interoperable um, data with the minimum data going to a state health data trust. So there must be some centralized data, but the principle is it should be the absolute bare minimum. Wherever we can store data on the personal holder's device, store it there. This is like minimum metadata, um, just public anonymous sites, the most minimum possible, but that must be in a state health data trust with gateways in between them, verifiable credential triangle on top of that, application ecosystem on top of that, policy frameworks at every level. Um, so Gabor, can we work together? Can we make a, uh, an ecosystem of verifiable credentials that optimize access to test results? I was thinking to myself, it's such a sunny day, let's stop this, go grab a beer and hash it out in some nice garden with some birds singing and... <laughs> at, at the burn, right? We're, we're gonna meet in Davis Square. So I, I love that this is, I, I honestly, when brilliant people come together, you see that solutions can be done differently. And just to reset the framework of what's going on is the idea was is that currently the way that we're still doing tracking and tracing is down to a person-to-person -person engagement. It's leading on the memory of the individual where you can do with safe path or path check as it's now being referred to, is it elevates the ability to create anonymous data, to create a better circumvent and to replicate the past 28 days and truly track and trace, but more importantly, an inherent level of trust to be able to do this using technology that could perhaps uh, screen, trace, and also isolate those at biggest risk so that we can potentially stop the spread of this pandemic. The idea of path check is about containment, not necessarily about being able to moderate the risk, but basically being able to mitigate what's going on very effectively in a way that we cannot currently do on the systems that are being utilized. So it's a very forward way of thinking. And when we combine that then with testing data, that allows us to actually perhaps reopen up even faster. And maybe that might be where we turn over Gabor. And if you want to talk a little bit about what testing is going to look like in your world for Minta to understand this, and we can have a greater discussion. And, and at this point, anybody can jump in and ask some questions and, and shoot them to Myra. Myra will text them to us. But let's, let's have that conversation because I, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to take a lot of brilliant thinkers to sort of do this using a combination of technology in the ways that we know used to work when we're doing it human to human, but making us smarter along the way. So Gabor, what are you doing on that, that forefront? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I love the way you started the whole thing, Greg, about trust. It's like, you know, on most any platform technology that you use, Airbnb, Uber, we had to remember all the debates we had, are you gonna sleep in a stranger's home? There's someone hiding in the attic. There's someone in the trunk of the car who's gonna come out and grab you. You know, five, 10 years later, it's all gone. 
Um, but that still exists in life sciences and diagnostic testing. Which labs do you trust? Do you send it to Harvard? Do you send it to LabCorp? Do you send it to Quest? So I fundamentally agree that there's a tech stack, there's a trust and policy issue here that has to be tied together. Without trust, we're still going to stuck working with the same three labs or whatever friends or colleague that you're going to send the test to, right? Um, uh, but let me throw something up that'll sort of paint the picture a little bit. Um, if I can, uh, it's here. Um, and one thing I should mention too, as you pull that up, Gabor, is um, Greg's company with the whole path check coming out is spinning out of MIT, where your work spun out of Harvard. So we're sort of bringing a merging of the minds on the other side of the river together as they sort of explore this problem from two different directions. So keep going, Gabor. No, no. I mean, it's just sort of a little, uh, what I call a cartoon about what this looks like, you know. So, you know, in our minds, you know, you have these clinical labs and these labs could be clinical or research. And so, you know, if you look at these little uh, academic things, you know, inside each one of these little buildings is normally, uh, for example, at Harvard, uh, Harvard has like 20 shared equipment facilities. UMass has 100. And the clinical war is no dif e different. Uh, you know, each one of these buildings could be a huge reference labs and probably hundreds or thousands of LDT labs that's run under clear cap regulations, right? And so, I mean, like, like the founders of Sonos say, you know, simple things are really hard to build. Um, so this looks simple. We just take all the stuff, we put it into Minta and you click this test for antibodies <laughs> and RT-PCR, boom, out comes the result. Um, but the reality is, you know, as we sort of operationalize, uh, you know, sort of the workflow, the way, the way we're looking at it, there's a lot of moving parts. And I agree with Greg that, you know, through this sort of workflow that we've created at Minta from employer to employee and the things we're responsible for, not actually don't even show the, the QR code. So on the end of this graph here on the right where you, you get your test results is where we're thinking, Greg, to put in the QR code because we think that's the bridge between what we do and how the employer is going to operationalize their policies, right? What's the point of knowing positive negative status if it doesn't tie into some way to change or manage behaviors of employees or control access to sites or parts of buildings? And, you know, um, and what's interesting about this whole metadata thing is that on the research side of our business, one of the values that we actually sell to our channel partners is that if you think about it in the research world, analogous here in the clinical world, as these users go through this workflow, right? And there's many more moving parts here. Who on the planet is capturing those behaviors? Right, so from even on the operational laboratory requisition side, there's not one platform or like a Facebook or something that's capturing how clinical people or employers or research scientists are behaving. Which tests are they ordering? What date, what equipment, how many, what quality, whatever. Um, you know, so it's not for us, it's not just about understanding what people do once they get the results and the tracing. For us, it's actually way before. Right? It goes very deep into the entire ecosystem of what every one of these labs and every one of these clinicians are doing and clicking in the app and then after the app, after they got the data. And that's where I'm kind of excited to talk to you more because it ties these two worlds together that I didn't actually see before. Rebecca, can I ask Gabor a question? Please. Do you mind bringing that back up, Gabor? Oh, sorry, I cheated yeah. you. Um, and so John Werner just joined as well. I want you guys to know. Hi there, John, thanks for joining hey. us. Hey, John. Hey. Um, so Gabor, um, you know, just to kind of connect, uh, you know, the uh, verifiable credential part of what I, what I just described, is, is it your thought that the access to the test results goes to the employee and the employer, or does it go just to the employee? And then the employee does a zero knowledge proof uh, response to challenge to the employer. Uh that's a good point. Um, you know, my current, our current thinking is that the employer should not get the results per se, right? But they should know the status of the employee. Otherwise, there's no point for the employer to pay for testing. They, they can't implement policies if they don't know what the results were. Um, 
and it, that's not actually very clear in my mind how we're actually going to do that. But I, I do know the employer uh, will not be getting the actual report that's coming out of the clinical lab. That's the fact. Does it seem the, the process that I described where a uh, digital credential goes to the digital wallet of the holder who then is presented by a challenge and then has a zero knowledge proof response that says either I do or I don't meet your policy. Does that seem like? Yeah, if, if I were to pull up the mock-up and I can't find it here, but yeah, there's a mock-up in the app where we deliver the results. There's actually a little mobile phone with a QR code that says, uh, has tested pass or some, you know, just pass fail kind of uh, criteria. That, that's what I envision. So right, it's I essentially what you showed before. So as much as I am thrilled that this is happening, I did not expect that this was going to be a meeting of the minds and a melding of, of technology and testing together to actually reopen society safely in two missing buckets. But I, I just knew you guys had to be on the same platform. And I think where, where you guys are definitely going to have to connect after, I think where we should go with the conversation now that John's here is fundamentally, what does the future, what can we do using technology today to manage this pandemic? I think all of us on this call are concerned about reopening society. Many of us from my background as a nurse and being in public health, the idea of opening society right now feels like we're about to jump off a cliff into unknown, but with very you know, mathematical certainty that we are going to start to see some challenges from doing so if we don't do it correctly. So based on that conversation, where do you think, how can we be smarter based on that we recognize in our own society that what we had put in place to points of other parts of the world, let's be honest, we're not South Korea, we're not China, and we're not going to follow the same policies and procedures that were put into place there. How can we use technology what you both are doing to actually reopen society and give us both as, as families and loved ones and parents and, and you know, sons and daughters feelings that we can do this and this is the way going forward. So John Warner, why don't you jump into the conversation, tell us a little bit of how you got involved and why you wanted to get involved in this kind of project. Um, sure, and I, I apologize, I was on a, 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 a call uh, across 11 time zones right before this and everyone got the times mixed up and it bled into this this event. Um, I think the world of Rebecca Love, I just want to put that out there. I recorded a talk that she gave and now Ted wants to put it on a podcast and it's going to go galactic. So uh, Rebecca, you're awesome. And, and I, I do think nurses are such an important part of the equation. And as we come out of this pandemic, I think there's gonna be a new definition of what it means to be a nurse. And I feel like, Re Rebecca, you embody that and you've been leading on that. Um, I'm really proud of, of um, I had a conversation with Greg the other day about how they're practitioners and then they're advocates. And we're building software, but we're also evangelizing on some things that, that we think can help people work together, help people feel safe and help re-energize the economy. And I think Greg embodies a lot of the advocacy and the, the thoughtful uh, collaboration that we're gonna need because we're not a surveillance state, we are a democracy. And I think we're gonna have to navigate and, and it, it does seem like uh, um, you know, these, this is uncharted territory. The, and they're bad actors in data. I mean, you look at Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, uh, you know, do, do people necessarily trust some of the, the players that are, are vacuuming up all of society's data? And what do we, what do we need to do here? Um, I will say that um, Professor Rasker, who I, I worked in his lab and helped run innovation and new ventures for his lab, we went to India 12 times in three years and uh, every quarter and there was a city that had about 30 million people converge on it for 40 days. And our hypothesis was this tier two city, which more people live in on the planet than not, uh, the future of cities like that is not infrastructure, but it's data. And so we did a bunch of uh, um, initiatives with MIT um, students and faculty and postdocs uh, around that. And I, I do think what we're doing here is not just about how to re-energize the economy, but it's how we're gonna do a lot of things across a lot of different domains. Um, but let me let me hand off to Greg because I'm, I'm not sure what I missed, but Greg goes through walls. He makes shit happen. He's one of the most tenacious people and I'm so glad he's part of the founding team and, and leading us uh, on, on what we're trying to do. Rebecca, maybe I'll just show one thing that just, just came this morning to my email. Don't fall for this contact tracing scam, right? So, right, trust. Right, so this is in the paper, this is, you know, this morning, right, contact tracing scam, right, so if you can't trust the information that you're getting, 
then how are we going to reopen society? Um, Absolutely, fundamentally, and and I think that conversation of what you you're having here is trust is going to come down to everything. And so, how do we counteract that? Where does trust come into line with technology, but also truth? Um, because I think there is so many message, messages. How are you going to combat that when it comes down to scientific rigor and when it comes down to the the, the you know the big brother state conversations that I'm sure are going on in the world to be more effective? And in what line? Does a pandemic cross that line between trust and safety and, and personal protection in the world? How can technology do it differently um, to those points? Gabor, I want to, you know, where, I, where I'm going with this, I think, is the Linux Foundation with their new Trust Over IP Foundation. And to me, that's the way that we operationalize this at the scale of the internet. You know, trust is a, it is not a vague notion. It is a thing that can actually be managed as a data asset. Um, and it can be done in a uh, in the, the distributed fashion that scales to the internet that doesn't have you know, one big controlling entity, but is as distributed as the internet is distributed. So you know, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in applying you know, this, we're about to start a task force in the Trust Over IP Foundation too, actually. Uh, one which would be focused on, on uh, trust in terms of contact tracing and uh, and testing, um, so pandemic response, and then one um, in terms of uh, what I was working on previously, the Internet of Education. But I'd love to work with you on the on the medical one. Rebecca, you just um, made me think of something. Let me just throw this out, and I don't I don't think this is too political, but you know, coming out of '89, Tiananmen Square, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think people said, "Oh, look, democracy won." And when the USSR broke up, people said, "Wow, democracy won." I think. Um, you know, looking at China and, and some of the successes they're having, you know, people are wondering, well, wait a second, does the surveillance state have some benefits? One party have some benefits? And now there's even a race. Is it going to be the U.S.? Is it going to be China that's going to come up with a cure for this pandemic? I think there's no turning back that there'll be other things like this pandemic and that we need to come up with some ways that we can be citizen-centric, open source, and, and empowering um, and and I think democracy is at stake here. I mean, just to comment on Greg and John, your comments. So, you know, on, on the traditional side of business, the way we've dealt with trust, it's kind of counterintuitive because in the research world, when you send out a sequencing project for a service lab, again, what is the best lab, whatever, how do you measure quality publications, whatever, is it George Church's lab or not? Like you go down the list of famous people. But what we've done on the research side, and we're going to implement this on the clinical side, is that we believe that in, in science, because um, this is science related, right? <laughs> um, you know, scientists, we're sort of a fickle bunch, uh, hard to win over, right? And when I think of science, I think the trust really revolves around two components of trust, which is one is how, at least in the Minto world, how these laboratories, um, actually behave when we send them employees samples, that is, are they responsive? Are there behaviors that, that, that we measure? And we actually have quite a few of them. And then there's data that they output, right? So in the research side of business, we aggregate this 13 into one score. And this is something similar we did at Agilent when we developed quality scores for RNA and all these other things. It's gold standard now for our RNA. I think there are ways to blend behaviors and data in the scientific world that will be easily understood by scientists or clinical worlds and even humans, right? But those standards have to be developed. It can't just be data, it has to be behaviors, right? And I think we can blend it this way um, is, is the way we look at it. Um, data on behaviors. And John, to your point of citizen-centric and open source, you're making a very interesting um, point here that, you know, the world is, it, you know, the question does come down to the way the world is being ruled at this point in time. And how does democracies win in times like this, in this kind of conversation? And the truth is, how do, you know, the, we know mathematical certainty, how disease spreads, how pandemic spreads, human-to-human -human contact, there might be a, a, a decreased risk going into the summer months in the United States based on some of the science, which is showing. 
how can we get ready for the fall? How do we get ready in a time of, of, of political you know, uh, elections and uncertainty, um, moving this conversation forward? And what would be, in your mind, a very pragmatic approach that melds the idea of fundamental American democracy with this need of citizen-centric open source a way to manage a society so that in the public health interest of all of us to be able to live in a free society, we can do that safely. So what would be those steps if you guys could sort of categorize them? What, what should we be doing as a society knowing that we're opening up, but giving the, the, the future of that in the, in the workforce? And, and John, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I've traveled to um, China a number of times the last few years and, you know, there was a culture of wearing masks, you know, uh, before this. I think there's this is kind of like a 9-11 moment where you don't go through an airport the same way you did uh, before 9-11. I think, you know, we're going to think differently about how we congregate. And as a lot of us have kids, as, as schools think about what they're going to look like this coming fall, you know, how do you help uh, keep the teachers safe who may be in an older population? How do you have uh, students interact. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of creative thinking and we're going to have to figure it out and tools like this are going to help uh, be empowering and and um, and we got to think about how people can feel safe and, and interact. Uh, so, you know, this is a transition point. We need a lot of creativity and we need to build off some things at work. And, and I think that's what, what we're doing. And, uh, um, you know, we've been very methodical and thoughtful about it. Uh, and, um, you know, I think, uh, I don't know how much Greg presented earlier about what we're doing, but uh, I think this is the time where we need great minds to think about it. And, and uh, I, I, I worry that, uh, you know, if there's a second wave that comes and suddenly we clamp down like, uh, like a turtle and going inside its shell, um, you know, we won't have learned from this moment. So we, we need to think a few chess moves ahead. Greg, what are those chess moves thinking ahead? Yeah, what's the answer, Greg? <laughs> Trust, trace, verifiable test, you know, but, you know, even with that, you know, the other thing that I think a lot about, because it's what I've thought about for 30 years until March 12th, is how do we move from the old industrial model of education that values seat time and a letter grade system that is effectively used to sort the haves from the have-nots um, into an actual appropriate learning ecosystem that optimizes each human's potential. And if we don't make that change now, if we go back to the same way that we've been doing, you know, education up until this point, um, it will be a tremendously lost opportunity. The fall will not be the same. You know, what's driving colleges to reopen is their financial bottom line. It's not their commitment to learn. Right. They have become a you know a industry that obviously has you know gone up to uh, you know inflate at much higher than the, the rate of inflation right and with the result of that in america right now just about 50 percent of those who start higher ed complete for the other 50 percent they have debt no diploma right and of course that skews massively towards um away you know towards a negative outcomes for the poorest and most vulnerable so we can't just keep on doing what we've been doing. It hasn't been working. It hasn't been working for a long time, right? And for sure, it's not going to work this fall. Um, you know, the whole idea of social, of why you want to be on campus, why you want to be on a school, social learning. What's the one thing that we can't do this fall? You know, social closeness, right? So we need to think about more creative ways to solve the other problems, which is that you have to get young kids out of parents' houses so that they can get back to work, right? It's not learning, it's daycare that is needed in order to enable online learning to occur. So you have to have pods where five kids can go and then they can do online learning. We have to deal with the fact that our higher ed system has become massively involved with residential life, right? It's become mostly a landlord, right? And their landlord business is failing. And so now they need to bring people back because otherwise um, there's gonna be this wave of closing happening. But we need to think differently, right? We need to think about instead of the model of Harvard is the most prestigious because Harvard only accepts 1% of applicants, that false scarcity model is crazy, right? 30% of the students who are applying to Harvard are just as good as the 1% who got in. And the so one, why, and, the one why and why and it to 30% may be the most interesting. What's that? 
some of the 30%, those that not in the 30% might be most interesting. But you're talking about education. I also think hospitals are in a world of hurt, restaurants, the service economy. We need to create tools where people can can congregate and interact and, and go about their lives. And people are gonna become nostalgic for the way things are, but they're not gonna go back exactly how they were, whether it's this pandemic or, or, or other things. I think there's gonna be a new normal coming out of it. And, and I think what we're trying to figure out will help inform people to, to take baby steps in uh, collaborating and interacting and, and, and bringing back our economy. I mean, when I hear the word democratize, uh, John, I'm kind of sensitive because my family escaped from Hungary when I was only eight. It's probably a good story to have over some beers. But uh, when I hear the word democratize, we always use that in the context of Minta because, you know, think about it. The Internet has democratized access to information, right? You can argue whether it's cor correct uh, information. You can argue whether it's education. Wikipedia or, is more accurate than most encyclopedias. Uh, yeah, because you, know, you get more data points on one, more different angles. Yeah. Uh, where I was going is that, you know, the best way to de-risk and democratize access to testing and all the thing that's tied to testing, because testing is not just the test, as we all know, is just like happened in the in computer age. Probably all of us are old enough here. At some point at home, we had a hard drive that stored data. Now, when you say data, you think of the cloud, right? Who has a hard drive? Who has a server? Well, Clio Labs and very finite use cases. And I think if you want to really democratize access to testing and all that supply chain, yeah, I had. <laughs> <laughs> if you could spin it up and actually display it, you know, I'll owe you a, a, a couple of drinks. I actually have a Commodore 64 and an audio uh, cassette uh, disk drive. Well, if you want to democratize testing, move all of it to the cloud. Just like has happened everything with data, shopping, cars, dog walkers, homes, none of it really exists digitally. And that's, I think, one part is the best democratic way. It's distributed, it's de-risk, doesn't matter if it's LabCorp, whatever part of the octopus goes down, the system is still up and stable. You're not relying on Perkin Elmer to uh, provide test kits. You know, I hate to say it, but our president was sort of right when he said there was no testing shortage in the U.S. because we were looking at all the 50 labs and I have a big spreadsheet and I could see, yeah, there is supply there. It's just, it's not in one place. It's in 50 places. I was on the phone with the lawyer for the Red Sox and they're going to like do rapid testing and there was like an equity issue. You should baseball players to play baseball uh, get tested and take testing. And I think they're going to redeploy their steroid testing labs to do it as a way to optically show that, uh, you know, people aren't missing out. I, I think, you know, there, there are going to be a lot of losers, a lot of people marginalized in society that are, are going to be really hurting. And, and I also think about the gig economy, you know, right before this pandemic, we had like 3% unemployment. Now it's like 53% or something. And, um, you know, how do we, how do we create a situation where those people can feel safe going back to work and have opportunities? And I think a lot of that, a lot of this is what this is about. A lot of that is what this is about. One more, one more thought about trust, right? Because I think we keep on coming back around trust being um, the key element. So who do you trust? You know, do you trust, who would you trust more, each of you? The NSA or Facebook? Sort of an interesting question, right? Um, now, who who is the most trusted brand in, in just in the world? John Warner, that's a for you. Who who's the most trusted brand in the world, as they say? Uh, Greg Nadeau or, or Rebecca Love. Uh, don't doesn't TED TED Talks? Don't they say yeah. that they're the most trusted? it's the third third most tested media property online? Yeah, so third most, third most respected. But I thought they, that trust trust was the term that they were used in that on that ranking. No. Uh, I, you know, I've said it so many times that I forget. I, I know it's number three, and I don't know who number one and number two is, and I don't know exactly what it's it's uh, ranking of. You know, but you trust you do trust Wikipedia for to be in that if there is a bias, it it has a process in which the bias gets exposed, right? So it's not like you trust it you know universally, but you you get sort of you know you get the sort of it, it sort of ends up balancing out where you get 
you know, where there's disputes around a particular divisive issue, then it actually, there's a whole process in which the dispute itself becomes operationalized, right? So, um, so anyway, that's what I think we need in order to move forward as a society is we need trust. There's other things we're gonna need, but that's gonna be the center of it. But, but I think this, this, this challenge creates an opportunity for us to create something that has applications to many other things in society. And that's where, you know, I said earlier, you know, uh, a one party versus a democracy. This is a chance that we could show something great came out of a democracy. And I also think it's not clear that, that we've come up with something that's scalable and, and that the public is, is going to feel satisfied with and that all uh, parts of society uh, are going to be able to thrive with. And, and, th and that's sort of what we're working on, Greg and I and, and our team. And, uh, and uh, it sounds like some of you others are thinking about it the same way. So I, a question that just came into me, and it sort of sets us right up as we start to wind down, is um, they rec the, the audience recognizes you guys as some of the biggest thought leaders um, and shapers in, in conversations out there. So in, in looking at this, what final thoughts do you have to take back? If you were sitting in a, in, in a, you know, a looking glass in, in a year from now, what could we basically look backwards and say to the, the world, I wish we had done this, and if we do this now, we can democratize, we can equalize, we can access, and we can reopen society safely. What, what are those takeaways? Where do we go and how do we do that next? Hmm. Do you want to go first, Gabor? Why not? I'll stick my neck out. Yeah, I'm like a racehorse. I only know one thing. I always joke, I only know DNA in my entire career. So I think if we look back in a year, I mean, obviously, we should have tested earlier. That's sort of obvious, I think. What we'll see is that the, the infrastructure for testing and access testing, including a supply chain, should have been more solid. Whether that's us or someone else, the supply chains were never well built out, like the US highway system or the internet or the other infrastructure, satellite networks, Wi-Fi networks. Um, all those networks are really built out. We don't have a good infrastructure for testing, whether that's digital or not. Actually, I think to your point, supply chain just in general is going to be one of those things that we look back on um, dealing with this crisis and everything from PPE to testing to access to resources to all of that information. Supply chains absolutely are going to be one of those things that we fundamentally have to look at. Also, I think one other thing that we didn't touch on that is very important to us is the issue of manufacturing and what access to resources do we have in this country so that the supply chain issues that we faced in this crisis are potentially rectified going forward. So in a future pandemic, we don't face the same challenges that we face today on testing or on access to data on information but uh, Greg what are you thinking on that yeah I would say if, if we need to stop conflating price with value you know if there's anything that we learned during this crisis is that the essential workers are the ones who are delivering our food educating our kids taking care of our health and when Goldman Sachs a year after crashing the economy declared that their workers were the most productive valuable members of the, in the world they were mistaking price for value. Um, you know, well put. Uh, I, I will also add that um, I think we can't go back to the way things were and that we should leapfrog and go forward and think of new normals and uh, that this has accelerated a lot of things. And, uh, you know, Greg got passionate about education. I think education is gonna to need to be rethought how we're gonna do it. Uh, but, um, but I think whatever we come up with now has uh, applications to a lot of, every, a lot of corners of uh, society and how we, uh, how we uh, live generations to come. Greg, John, Gabor, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, this was incredibly interesting and valuable to the way that the world can look at using technology and resources to open up society safely, even if we haven't necessarily been able to change that and transformation that as much as we wanted to. It looks to me like we have some promise coming up in the next six months to do that, both with your program that you've implemented at PathCheck, thank you, John and, and Greg for doing so, and Gabor, with the way that you're looking at using META to basically democratize, equalize, and access, more importantly, trust through anonymous 
anonymize data to make sure that we can do this, preserve our democracy and come out stronger in future to managing crises like this. Myra, I'm gonna turn it over to you to wrap us up. To everybody who attended, thank you. You can find up follow-ups. Greg, John, and Gabor, stay on for a second and we'll turn this over to Myra, thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, Rebecca, John, Greg, Gabor, this has been amazing, tremendously insightful, and I hope that the takeaway for everyone is definitely, you know, just, we, I love that, you know, think to chess moves ahead. Um, to all of you who attended, thank you for joining us. You can also reach us via email at webinars at optimizerx.com with your questions, comments, ideas, happy grams, anything. Or if you or someone you know should be part of this series, please send us a line. We want to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us and until next time.